Hey everyone, this is your host, Jake Hirschman. Thanks for listening to the Life in the Front Office podcast. We are excited to bring you Suja Organic as our sponsor for today's episode. If you go to shop.sujajuice.com and enter the code LIFO, L-I-F-O, you'll be able to receive 15% off their packages. Excited to have Suja on board and thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, and this is part of our Next Up Partners Partnership Series. Um, here with Chris Traeger, uh, industry professional, and Chris has a ton of different experience we'll dive into between Legends, Bank of America, NASCAR, Octagon, and so on. Um, he's got a re- really unique perspective, having been on both the property side, the brand side, and the agency side. Um, And so, you know, when you look at the marketing side of things, uh, it's all encompassing. And we'll we'll talk about some of his different approaches, perspectives. Um, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So everyone's career starts somewhere and there's always a perspective gained. There's always a bump in the road. There's always a failure that you might have at the beginning that kind of sets your path a little bit. Maybe, you know, later on in the, in the career, you may have a left or a right turn or a U-turn unexpected as well, but usually early on you have something, right? That kind of sets you on a, on a path of some sort of direction. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you got started and, and how you got into the marketing world? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I had a, several defining moments uh, at a fairly young age. One was I was uh, on, on full scholarship playing football at University of New Hampshire and had a bunch of injuries. So my career got cut way short. Uh, I transferred to Ole Miss trying to change my luck. And unfortunately, I didn't. I got hurt again. And I decided, you know, what, I'm going to focus on the studies and, and uh, you know, get the GPA up and make sure that I get into law school. And, you know, I was like your typical college student where I, I did well, but I didn't really have a focus on exactly what I wanted my life to be. And so I got to law school, finished my first year and started thinking about, okay, well, what do I, what am I going to do? I don't necessarily want to be a real estate lawyer or a bankruptcy attorney or anything like that. And so I, at, at about 24 years old, I decided, you know, I, I really want to do something that involves sports because I played every sport growing up. And it was always a, a part of everything that I did every day. And I was like, you know what, if I'm going to do something for 40 plus years, I really want to enjoy it. And I had no idea how competitive it was. And you know, I tend to be fairly hardworking and maybe a little bit stubborn in a good way. So I was like, you know what, everybody else wants to be a sports agent. It's around the time of Jerry Maguire. I'm going to date myself a little bit. But literally every uh, law student in America thought I'm going to be the next Jerry Maguire. And of course, I was no, no different. So I just, I joined the Sports Lawyers Association as a student member and I started networking like crazy. And uh, that was really the, the aha moment where I'm like, you know, I'm gonna make this work. And, uh, and, and just, you know, finding that first job was, was the first domino to fall, so. Did the inspiration to get a law degree at one point come from kind of the drive to just go above and beyond and do more as, you know, being the student athlete you were? Yeah, it, it partly, but really for me, I went to law school because it was it was kind of a practical matter in some ways. I, I was a history major because I was I always loved history, man. Just my dad's a big history buff, and I grew up around it. And when you graduate from undergrad with a history major, you really can do one of two things: you can go back and 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 go to you know go to get your PhD, 
and teach at high school or college, or you can go to law school, really the two paths. So I thought, you know what, I want to learn the law and I wanted to learn it because it's the underpinning of everything that you do in business and society. It's the framework of America, really. And so I went to law school wanting to study law. I didn't know if I was going to practice or not. A lot of my classmates thought I was crazy that I had that attitude. But for me, it kind of took the pressure off. I didn't feel like I needed you know, go work for a big firm or anything like that. I just wanted to learn. And that's something that's really my, my whole trajectory has been about how do I learn something new every single day that's going to enhance my career or help my family or help others around me. So it's, I'm just a lifelong learner. And that's how I started law school. But then you get into it and you're like, okay, I got to do something with this. I got to figure out what I'm going to do to earn some money and pay the rent uh, when I graduate. And so I, I thought, you know, I'm going to focus on this sports thing. And it, it turned out okay so far. So. Well, and when you think about every successful organization, and I'll say most, right? Most successful organizations are either very legal-based or they're very finance-based from a foundational perspective, right? Uh, you talked about Jerry Maguire, show me the money, right? You got to kind of follow the money. Uh, from a legal perspective, there's always contracts involved, right? And, and you got to make sure you're doing things the right way, uh, holding every, you know, every constituent accountable, when you think about the legal foundations and the financial foundations and how that changes your approach, whether it be marketing, whether it be, you know, on the revenue side, um, and then even kind of forming the different teams you have, different departments from a legality perspective, um, what approach and, and perspectives did you learn from law school that you were then able to apply and take into the industry? Yeah, that's a great question, Jake. So, so the, the law degree helps you because on, on a couple of fronts. Number one, you're always trying to persuade someone either in writing or verbally. You're in class, you're doing the Socratic method where you're getting grilled by the professor over what the case was from last night's reading. So it, you had to be prepared no matter what. You had to make sure that you were able to not only be prepared, but think on your feet and answer tough questions with a moment's notice. And, and so you, you really get used to getting surprised. And as you know, in our business, things are changing constantly. The pandemic has definitely been the craziest change we've all, all gone through. But literally every day in my career as a lawyer, something new would happen that was good or bad, that was a surprise and, and you, you, you learn to deal with that. It also helped me to understand the framework of how things are built, right? So it's, th it's kind of like the building blocks of a golf tournament. Obviously you have some experience with that. You, you start with the tournament operations deal with the local club. You've got the TV deal with the golf channel that you got to put on air. Then you got to get it on, you know, distributed via digital media. So you do the different websites, social media contracts. Then you got all your sponsor contracts and you have your vendor contracts to bring in tents and tables and chairs and banners and all these other things. So when, when you have a law degree and you're working in that legal chair, you see every aspect of the sports business. And you see it from a, uh, from a functional and foundational perspective, right? So you have to sit there and think through what are all the various building blocks you need to put in place to have a golf tournament happen? And, you know, licensing deals and merchandising agreements and premium agreements. And so those agreements, they help you figure out all the various business aspects of it. And, and, and I always, being at an agency, you talk about following the money. So my to-do list every day got organized by the contracts that brought money in went to the top, the contracts that put money out the door went to the bottom of the list. And that's how I, because I was like, we got to have cash flow, right? And so that legal foundation helped me understand the business really fast and got me involved in every single potential vertical. And I was able to get that bird's eye view that you really can't get when you come up through the event management or the ticket sales or some of these other, you know, marketing coordinator roles that, 
that are out there. So I felt really blessed to have that experience early on. And it's safe to say that when you're in the legal shoes, right, people look at you as the expert of all, whether you like it or not, right? But you're, you're somewhat, you have to have a perspective on everything because people are looking to you as the legal expert to say, hey, is there anything wrong here? If not, okay, I'm good to go, right? And, exactly. and so you're quickly picking up on things. And of course, you're not going to know everything, right? And, and there's always learning experiences, um, which I'm sure you have just a few stories. Uh, but when you think about the, the agency world, right, let's start there. Um, you've got, you know, fulfillment that you need to make happen, uh, but then there's also, you know, the devil's in the details. There's also things that just happen and you got to change on a dime and, and make yeah. decisions. So how do the two perspectives uh, from a real-time application perspective, um, you know, coincide? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's, so for me, it was, I was too busy to be scared. Uh, so I, I started out with Octagon in the formative days. So it was um, they, they, the Interpublic Group bought Championship Group API was an international, mostly overseas organization founded by an Olympic sprinter from Britain. And then Advantage International was an, a sports agency here in the US. And they glued them together and created Octagon. And I was there as that process was happening. I got hired in 1997, fresh out of law school as a law clerk before I even passed the bar exam. And so it was one of those things where I, I worked my tail off to get in the door as a really entry level person, making, making very little money. But I knew it was a great opportunity. And from day one, literally, I walked in the door and the person who was supposed to mentor me went on a maternity leave early. And so she's, at, she's in her hospital bed and I'm like, I go in and I see this stack of papers on her desk, all these contracts and sweepstakes promotion filing papers and bonds and things like that. I'm like, what is this? So I just start sifting through the pile. And I just, I read, I read every word of it twice and I'm like, okay, I can figure this out. And luckily I had a good mentor there that was a person who had a law degree, was the managing director of that group. And he, he taught me a lot of great stuff about how legal and business and, and how that all gets balanced and how to draft the contracts and give me negotiating tips. And so from day one, I was kind of thrown into the fire, but like I said, I was so busy and I was learning so much that I just, I didn't have time to be scared of making mistakes or what do I do with this? I just had to act. And so I, I went through that process and I was fortunate enough to then get promoted up to through the ranks at Octagon, move up to Connecticut, New York. And, and uh, by the time I was 28 years old, I was general counsel of, uh, of the marketing division. So I'm, I'm working on things in Czechoslovakia and Germany and Bermuda, as well as golf tournaments all over the United States and tennis tournaments in Germany and things like that. So it was, it was amazing because I just was right place, right time, but I always try to outwork everybody and, and be smart about it too. Not just all effort and, and no brains. It was, you know, and always be, try to be client focused. Let's dive into a little bit of your experience on the brand side, because um, from a legal perspective, right, you got to make sure that everything you're paying for is, is not only fulfilled, but, you know, in, in, in the sponsorship world, um, you know, under, under promising and over delivering, right. You're kind of, you're expecting that as the brand, uh, per se. And so how did the, how did the legal background help you once you went to work for a brand? Yeah, it was really interesting because I, I happened to, uh, go to work for a brand that's very conservative. And so they appreciated the fact that I, I knew where all the potential landmines were and I could avoid them. And they also knew that we were going through negotiations with 
MLB and the NFL and NASCAR and, and all those organizations have lawyers and ex-lawyers all over them, right? You go to the you go to the NFL office in New York and you know there's not only people who are practicing law now, but there's a lot of people who have law degrees who are just in business up there. So like, hey, this, this is actually going to match well with other people we're working with and working against in some ways in negotiations. So so that was valuable. And then, you know, again, going back to what does that contract look like? What are the rights and benefits that we need? And how does that match the rights and benefits that um, come along with other agreements, league versus team versus media deals? I had all that background to understand what we needed and what we didn't and to negotiate effectively with all these various parties. And, and then when it came to the marketing piece of it, because I'd worked in a marketing agency for, for eight years, I knew a lot about the business of marketing. I'm not saying I'm an expert at that stage, but I, I knew enough where I could step right in and say, okay, I watched all these great world-class marketers at Octagon do their thing for a long time. And so I was able to take those learnings and apply them very quickly to all of our activation plans and all of our promotional efforts. How is marketing changing? Not only now, but how, how did it change when you were at uh, you know, B of A? And then as you, as you think about even now, as you're, I'm sure, you know, still paying attention to some of the partnerships and this and that, how is it continuing to evolve and change? Yeah, the, the biggest change, as we all know, is I'll call it channel proliferation, where it's, you know, you just have so many different mediums to, to get your message through. And because there's so many new mediums and they all have different formats, you know, when I first started in the business, the internet, you know, traditional websites were, were growing rapidly. But now you've got all these different social channels and there's new ones developing all the time and then some of them fade away and then within those social channels there's different formats and mobile first and things like that so that's the biggest change that i've seen and then analytics to go along with that right so it used to be that you you put a, a traditional billboard out or a traditional 30 second spot on radio or tv and you know you had some analytics from from some vendors but they, they, didn't, they weren't really precise and now with digital and social, you can get more precise and those engagement rates are, are really important to focus on. And, you know, the thing that's really interesting, though, is, it, you know, people tend to really gravitate towards digital. And I saw our budgets at Bank of America go from multi-channel and then they morphed and a lot of the, the budget got reallocated to digital. But I, I think smart marketers understand that you can't just go all digital and social. So you still have all these other channels. So basically what happens is the number of channels and the number of creative pieces and the number of messages that you have to put out there in the different versions, it's probably 20 times what it used to be five years ago, which makes it a lot harder uh, to measure success and, and, get, get, the, and get results for, for your brand. And to understand what audience is on which channel most of the time, right? You know, and, and what's going to resonate most with this group versus this group and you know, to your point, if you're trying to build a brand holistically, you want to capture everyone, right? When you think of Bank of America, it's how do you serve everyone uh, from, right, you know, 18 and a, and a checking account going into college to, you know, the retirement account and, and, and everything in between. And, you know, when you think about how you think like a brand, right? So if you're, you know, you put yourself back in your brand shoes, how do you go about the buying process? How do you, I mean, because there's, to your point, there's more options than there ever are. Uh, budgets are not limitless as, as much as you might want them to be, right? So you got you to pick and choose. Right. And, and in the sports business and entertainment business in particular, there's so many more things to buy. I mean, how many new leagues and teams and federations and events have been created in the last 20 years? It's, it's mind boggling. 
And so there's, there's tons of things to buy. How do you sift through what's the right fit? And that's where you, you wanna look at things like audience fit and who the audience is and what the audience has a tendency to buy. And you wanna make sure you build a puzzle that matches that audience and then build channels within that puzzle to match what, how to reach them. And so it's, um, and, and the overarching, you know, the most successful marketers, they care about brand and reputation and they think about that first and foremost but they also spend as much time worrying about how we're going to sell stuff, right? Because Wall Street, any top sponsor has shareholders to answer to the Wall Street community and, and other constituents inside. If you're not making money off your marketing investments at a, you know, one to one, two to one, three to one ratio, you're probably not going to last very long in a CMO's office. And that's why you see 43 months is the average tenure of a CMO because it's really hard to build these programs that are really complex and that build the brand while also helping sell things and then proving that your campaign did that. Because the sales guys are out there saying, I'm the one who sold it. Your, your, your fancy ad was kind of cool, but it didn't sell anything. I sold it. You know, they always want the credit because they were out in the trenches and I get it. So it's just really, uh, really tough, but you got to look at it from both sides and you have to think multidimensionally every single day. And people are like, oh, it's real easy. You're sitting on the brand side writing checks. It's like, you don't write a check unless you're a thousand percent sure that it's going to pay off because there's consequences and people get gone. There's, you know, there was, there were some execs at B of A who were very successful for 30, 40 years. They had one bad quarter and all of a sudden they're gone, you know? So it's, the stakes are a lot higher I think, than people realize inside the brand world. Yeah. And you know, when you think about marketing, right, there is no right answer. There is no, well, this is for sure going to work, right? There's, there's always a gamble. There's always a, well, let's try this and see if it works or let's align with this partner because the storylines match up, but hopefully it gets out in the right distribution channels, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, and, and then how you decide what something's worth is a whole nother ballpark, right? And, and so um, put yourself in that, in that brand, you know, shoe of, okay, what is this actually worth? And then to your point, what's my return on investment? So one of my questions to you is going to be what, what, you know, are you looking at three X, five X, 10 X? Are there certain things that can get that high in terms of return on investment? There are things that can, um, but it's like most things, you know, the, the more popular something is, the more expensive it is. So it's that balancing act of, do you, you know, some of the larger brands, you want to align yourself with the biggest brands in the world, like the Yankees and, and Man United and things like that. And, and if you can afford to do that, you can probably get the returns because the fan bases are that big. But if you're a mid-sized brand, it, it's really tricky, right? Because you're, you're focused on, you, you want to buy things that have a big audience and a big reach, but you want to get an affordable price so you can make sure you get that return on investment. And a lot of it is there is intuition involved. And if you're not innovating, then you're going to be left behind, right? Especially people think, oh, banking, it's, it's, it's very traditional and it's very conservative. One third of Bank of America's employees are technology people. People don't realize, you know, literally they're, they're a technology company that, that handles money. <laughs> and, and a lot of other companies like NASCAR is a technology company that happens to have cars on the track. I mean, there's technology as a backbone. And so you have to always innovate. So when you're innovating, you're taking risks. When you're buying things to try to, you know, grow your business, you're taking risks. But the reality is, as long as there's a proven track record and you've got data to support your position, there's always a debate about what something's worth. But if you can say with a straight face, hey, look, I've got these 10 other deals with teams that are pretty comparable or leagues that are comparable. 
And this is the range I'm willing to pay for this asset and for this whole deal. If, if you're, if you're um, within a, a 20 to 30% margin of all, all those other deals, then you're doing pretty well. And the most sophisticated people have multiple agencies. We had a lot of measurement in-house. We had our own analytics people. We had our you know, people, great people at Octagon who did really amazing work. And, 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 and the biggest sellers know that, right? So they might walk in and say, hey, it's worth this, but then they, they know you're gonna push back and find a middle ground somewhere. And that's, they start high on purpose, right? Because they know there's some give and take in that. And especially with, uh, with the larger properties, they really are aggressive at, at going big, but they, they kind of have to be to grow their business. And we understand that. So it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a friendly give and take. Absolutely. And, and as I, as I'm listening to you talk about this, right, you at one point mentioned, well, we're not just sitting here writing checks. And then on the other side, you're saying, okay, well, I've got to know my comparables. I've got to know this, that, and the other, you're doing your research. And just as a salesperson is prospecting, you're likely prospecting as well, right? You're, even if you're not searching for the specific team, um, and, and reaching out, right? There's plenty of people that will reach out to you. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of that, but you're doing your research on the back end to know, okay, well, if this person reaches out, is it worth my time even engaging, right? Yep. Yeah, you're doing that. But, you know, there's the other people, the thing people don't realize is that regardless of what the dynamics are internally and budget and planning and things like that, as a person inside of a brand that's buying media rights or, or sponsorship deals, you're a salesperson and you're because you have to persuade dozens of people that what you're doing is right. And you might have to persuade them before you write the check, which is what we did at Bank of America, or you have to persuade them when the next go round comes up and there's always change, right? So you're always trying to do that internal sell and you, you get this barometer of what are people going to think is a no brainer, like sponsoring all the top leagues, no brainer. Like that's not gonna get much resistance. Then you go down the next rung, eh, you might get a little resistance. You go down to something that started yesterday, gonna get a lot of resistance because people don't know about it. And so you get that internal gauge, but then I always, a lot of people just don't take the time, but I always wanted to see the pitch from people that were with well-regarded teams and leagues in very sophisticated sports organizations, right? So if somebody calls me and tries to sell me a title sponsorship of a PGA Tour event, I'm going to take that call because I want to understand how they're thinking and what might be new. What, did I miss something? And maybe this PGA Tour event in Miami is more sophisticated than the PGA Tour event in LA. Maybe they've got some good ideas. I'm already sponsoring LA. Maybe I want to borrow some best practices and maybe it makes sense to do this event in Miami based on how sophisticated they are. Maybe they can help me drive my business in Miami. And I would do the same thing with NHL and NBA. And, and, and I would start off by saying, budgets are flat. This is a long shot, but I want to hear what you have to say. And so I would learn a lot just from taking those pitches. And I would do, you know, one of those a week. I would also decline a bunch that were, you know, newer or unproven or in markets that we just weren't as Bank of America. We weren't in Ohio or anything like that. So I wouldn't take, I wouldn't waste the, the, the time of the, of the Bengals or something because we just didn't have a presence there. But um, if, it, if it had any strategic potential at all, I would take the call and listen. And, and I would also ask him for some data ahead of time. Tell me about, your, send me a deck with your data, with your fan base uh, information. And if they sent me something really good, I'd take the call. If they sent me something that was really rudimentary, I'd say, oh man, you know what? I had a conflict come up, you know, meeting with the CMO, can't make it, you know? And so it was one of those things where it was a great intel gathering exercise. And there's a lot of salespeople out there probably like, this guy's crazy, but 
Um, but you know, I was very careful not to waste anyone's time, but I also wanted to make sure I, I knew what was going on and, and I had a pulse on the market. Absolutely. And, and when you think about um, being a salesperson in a marketing role, a lot of people think about the, the two terms of sales and marketing in different buckets, right? They think of them as opposites. And um, you went on from B of A to Legends where you were in charge of a sales team. So someone would look at your career path and go, well, how did he go from marketing to sales, right? Yeah. Because they're, they're opposites, but they're not. Uh, and, and you went from managing constituents and internal constituents, mm -hmm. uh, agencies, et cetera, to then managing a team Talk a little bit about the differences and even similarities in those processes and how they relate. Yeah, well, I think there's 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 definitely some nuances there. When somebody's reporting directly to you, it's you know it is a little bit easier because you're in charge. There's a hierarchy, and you're saying, "Hey, this is what you should do." But I've always been a believer that you you wanted to have good rapport with people that work directly for you, and you wanted them to have buy-in, right? You don't want to be just this person who's a dictator who's barking orders and no one and everybody's rolling their eyes, right? So I've always had people working for me since I started my career, even if it's one or two or ten or fifty or sixty people. I always want to make sure I understood what made them tick, what motivated them, uh, got to know their personality, their style. Are they direct? Are they passive aggressive? Are they a giver? Are they a taker? And all those dynamics are important to know as a boss. When you start uh, bringing in all these stakeholders around you and every job that I've had in my career, I've had a lot of stakeholders, clients as a lawyer, uh, lines of business and agencies and, and uh, channel partners at B of A. At NASCAR, I had race teams. I worked with the tracks, the, the, the TV partners, NASCAR.com. So those are all separate stakeholders. And it's all about persuading and building rapport and understanding where your interests align. And so... Um, when you sell somebody something, you're persuading them, you're bringing a story to light. So you know, as a marketer, you tell a story about a product or service. As a salesperson, you're telling a story about what you're selling. And then as a marketer, you're trying to persuade a consumer to consider a product down the line from the salesperson. As a salesperson, you're more directly persuading, hey, here's all the attributes. You know, we really think this would be a great alignment. And so it's, it's interesting. Like the analogy I keep using is, you know, people want to make it sound like, sales and marketing are like, like engineering and oil painting. Like they're not that different, right? So I, I, the analogy I always think of is it's almost like the guard in the center, right? I'm an old off offensive lineman. Yeah, the center's got to call the offensive uh, blocking scheme. They have to snap the ball. They have different blocking schemes. The, the guard's not making a snap. He's not making any calls as to what the scheme is, but they're both blocking and they have to help each other out, right? So the salesperson is like the center and the marketer is like the guard, right? Because sometimes you're double teaming something, sometimes you're helping each other out. And, but the center has very unique uh, responsibilities and so does the guard. Uh, but they're, they're in the same family. It's, it's not like, you know, you go from being a wide out to, uh, to a left tackle, right? I mean, and that's, I, I kind of viewed it that way where it's like people are like, oh, how'd you, like the bigger jump was going lawyer to marketer. You're like, how'd you make that jump? Well, for me, I, my dad told me he's an advertising guy. He was a creative director for, for 35 years. He said, know your client's business as well, if not better than they do. Because that's the only way you can give advice that's informed, right? You can, you can give all the advice in the world, but if you don't know the business, you're giving bad advice. You're out of touch and you're going to make mistakes. So I learned the marketing business. I learned the sales. I worked with the, some of the best salespeople at Octagon too. We were selling sponsorships, you know, guys like Scott Seymour, who's like, He's like the most understated guy, but he's a great salesperson. He's always bringing in sponsorships and, and doing great media buys and things like that. So, 
So you, you, you learn the, all the, the tricks of the trade and then you can transfer those skills um, to different parts. And so there's, it's close enough where I felt like, and, and the other thing that's really interesting is I've noticed a big trend where you, you have these traditional sellers have always been on the sales side and, and they do a really nice job. But until you sat down with 10 different agencies and line of business partners and channel partners, and you built out a you know, $10 million activation plan, that's going to last eight months and you got to get all these results until you've actually built that puzzle. You don't really understand all the ins and outs of what you're selling in the package, right? You know, you know, the media metrics, you know what the assets are, you know, specs, but you can't really envision how they're used and how they're generating ROI and how they're paired with other things that these companies have. And so I felt like it was a big advantage going over onto the sales side, knowing what the buyers wanted. And so I, I took a little bit of a different approach and, and we got some great results in, in Las Vegas because my, my uh, skills I viewed as very complimentary to the amazing salespeople at Legends. Those guys are hard charging. They get big deals done and they do a ton of them. And so it was a really interesting pairing where I, you know, we learned a lot from each other in the process. So. And, and in Vegas, you're selling something that, I mean, it exists, right? They built the stadium, but it, it, but it never had actually existed in terms of, hey, such and such client had a great time at the game and they can give you a testimonial, right? It doesn't, that, that, that never had happened yet still actually hasn't happened. Right. Um, you know, and when you think about the sales side of it, when you're either marketing and you're asking questions to the person who's trying to sell you something or you're selling and you're asking the client, the consumer, all the things that you mentioned, you got to ask good questions. Right. And I would have to imagine you're a pretty good question asker uh, in, in many of your experiences where you have some sort of philosophy on how you go about picking someone's brain, thinking about the topic, as you mentioned, right, knowing more about someone else's business than they do, you can't do that unless you ask good questions um, and get that person to open up, be vulnerable, right, tell you things that you can't just read on a website. Reading, reading information about a brand or someone's business on a website is not going to get you over that line of knowing more than they do. So how do you ask good questions? Yeah, um, it's different for every company and for every person, right? So you've got to figure out very quickly what makes someone tick. And, you know, there's the old, oh, what are your objectives? Well, yeah, that's an important question, but it's, it's also important to spend some time with them and say, so what are you working on right now? What works, what works really well? What's, what, you know, what's the best thing that you guys have done from a marketing perspective in the last year? Why was it so good? What, was there something that you did that didn't work? Why did it fail? And, and, and really have that insider's dialogue about you know, what's gonna make their, like what's gonna make them look good individually, what's gonna make their company view a deal as a success, what's gonna drive ROI for them and and how is that different than the next company? Because even if it's two companies that are competing with each other, they might have different perspectives, right? So, you know, one, one technology company might be really focused on selling the cloud. Another one might be selling software and, and uh, hardware. And so it's really understanding where their financial revenue streams are coming from and then how marketing can help push those revenue streams. And so for technology companies, it's one thing. For casinos, it's another. For airlines, it's another. And the interesting thing about being a lawyer at Octagon, because we had all these consulting clients across a, a variety of verticals, and then I was also negotiating deals with a bunch of different companies in different sectors, 
on the, on the sales side, I knew what a MasterCard wants in their deal and I knew why they wanted it. And I saw what activations work. I knew what an airline, I knew what a car, luxury, you know, domestic. And so that actually helped us build the puzzle in Vegas because you had all the great salespeople like, we should put all this stuff in there. Yep, that makes sense. But here's what I heard when we had that conversation. And you just hear things differently when you have that legal training and when you've been on the brand side and you're able to pick up clues that are really subtle, but incredibly important and shape the conversation in different ways. And sometimes it's just a couple of different words. It's that simple, which people are like, oh, that's crazy. But we, I saw it firsthand with a couple of prospects we were talking to in Vegas. Well, and, and as, as a lawyer, words matter, absolutely matter. Uh, we, you, you see, you know, and, and also clauses and all that, you know, the different things that you either leave in, leave out, um, they matter a lot more than you think. And when you look at a pandemic, you learn your lessons sometimes, depending on what words say. Um, but as we wrap up the episode, and you think about tips for negotiation, um, tips for, look, it's easier said than done. A lot of the things that we've talked about are a lot easier said than done. You, a lot easier to even just talk about than put it into action um, and have it be successful. But at the end of the day, there's still, again, that approach, right? Or um, that perspective that's gonna at least get you halfway down the football field and then you gotta do the rest um, as you've mentioned, right, with doing your due diligence on a lot of things. So what are some of your negotiation tips um, and even marketing tips just as, as a holistic approach uh, perspective? Yeah, I mean, in terms of negotiations, uh, you know, the first thing they teach in contract law 101 is, is uh, begin with the end in mind and, and get to yes, right? Try to figure out what, what the gaps are and there's give and take, there's compromise. And some of it's wording, but some of it's also just understanding the other person's position. So it's putting yourself in the other shoes, which is empathy. And we hear a lot, you know, especially with the pandemic, emotional intelligence, empathy, those are critical to negotiation. If you're not empathizing with the other person's position, and it took me a long time to figure this out. You know, I'd be on one side of the table and someone would come across with a position and I'd be like, oh man, that's kind of ridiculous. And then you, you start to think, well, why do you want that? And you ask those probing questions of how to, you know, why is that important to you? And, and how important is that to you versus this other thing that you want? Because you can't have both of those things. They're, they're mutually exclusive, right? You get into those kind of conversations philosophically. And so it's, it's, it's putting yourself in the other shoes and, and also understanding compromise is important and winning is relative, right? So the, 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 that whole getting to yes book, and it was a book that we read first week of class. It's, if you win every point in negotiation, you really haven't won long-term because you've just bloodied them and beaten them up so badly and, they're, and, they're, and they'll be upset with you. Psychology matters. And that next renewal or then whenever there's like, if a pandemic hits and the clause isn't worded exactly right for force majeure, right? There's, a, there's little mini negotiations. No contract is 100% airtight and comprehensive. There's always gray areas and there's always things that people forgot because they can't read the future. There's no crystal ball. So you have to understand as a negotiator and as somebody who's building relationships and partnerships that there's going to be a point in time where you need that person on the other side of the table to help you out with something and compromise. And if you go in at guns blazing and try to win every single point and you beat them up, you might be high-fiving when that ink gets dry, but it's going to come back and bite you. And, it might, and, and the harder you push, the more likely it is to, to boomerang back on you. So you, you start to understand that 
And um, it doesn't mean you're gonna be a pushover by any means. You're gonna push as hard as you need to in a friendly way, but you gotta get to compromise. And, and the other piece of it I would say is, um, what I've learned is it, you know, there's two different mindsets in people in general. There's people who are givers and people who are takers. And the best partners are people who give and take. And they, and, and they usually give more than they take, right? Um, people that tend to take more from a relationship usually the partnership falls down somewhere. So that all kind of goes hand in hand. And, and uh, the more generous you are on the front end of a negotiation and making sure you get what you need, but also giving up a little bit, the more likely the partnership is to last and be productive. And you get you really get what you want in the long run. I mean, at the end of the day, right, it's, it's money, it's words, it's marketing, it's this, it's that. But I, you know, many, many times you talk to different executives at the end of the day, it comes down to people, right. And those relationships and the relationships to be able to work out all of those other little details, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, um, you know, I've, I've, we've got a, a family saying where you either pay now or you pay later. If you pay later, you usually pay more. So, exactly. uh, you know, it's, it's finding those negotiation sweet spots, right. Where you're able to make everyone happy in a win-win situation. All right, we, got, we dove into a lot of heavy stuff there. Um, so I'm going to ask you a quick rapid fire questions just to uh, lighten it up as we, as we wrap up. Okay, you played offensive line, but we all know offensive linemen wanted to play quarterback, running back, or wide receiver to score. So which position would you have played? Uh, you know, probably running back. I like, I like to run into people. Would you have been a run pass option guy or a or an eye formation guy? Probably eye formation. I actually like contact a lot. <laughs> that that makes sense. That therefore the offensive lineman. That's right. Um, from a NASCAR perspective, have you had the chance to go to get in a car on a track? Uh, and if so, uh, what was that experience like? It's amazing. You know, it's one of the few sports uh, where you actually can experience it like the athletes do through a lot of the driving schools out there. So I did the Richard Petty driving experience and uh, it's very different than driving your own car. And uh, being big is a real disadvantage, <laughs> to be honest, because we're, we're on Zoom right now. But what are you, 6'5", six, 6'7"? Six, I mean, what? I'm about 6'4", and six, right now about 280. And it, most drivers are, are, you know, average to a little bit smaller size. And I get in the car and like just shifting and, you know, moving the pedals, not so easy when you're that size and you get in a race car. So. If you could describe that experience in one word, what would it be? Uh, nerve wracking. It's, it's scary. You know, you're going 200 and, and the car is like all over, it's slippery. That's, uh, and, and you're going in circles. Uh, yeah. literally. All right. Last question for you. You know, you, you started out in New Hampshire, went to Ole Miss. What's the favorite place that you've played? Could be a visiting stadium. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really play much in college, but I went to a lot of Ole Miss games and there's, there's really nothing that beats the Grove and, and the whole experience there. I mean, it's one of the best experiences on the planet. Uh, so Vaught Hemingway stadium is, is probably the, the, the coolest football stadium I've been in. Awesome. Well, Chris, really appreciate your insights on marketing, sales, the legal side of things. Uh, we touched on a lot, but really appreciate your time um, and thoughts and perspectives. Thanks a lot. I'd love to do it again. I love doing these things. So.
Thanks again for listening to the Life in the Front Office podcast. Remember, today's episode was brought to you by Suja Organic. If you go to shop.sujajuice.com and enter the code LIFO, L-I-F-O, you'll be able to receive 15% off of their packages. Excited to have Suja on board for the month of April. And again, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next episode.